July, it's still worth pausing for a moment to think some happy birthday thoughts. But first, what's your take on Suzanne Vega? Like her? Loathe her? Maybe never heard of her? Well, in case you fit the last group, she's an American singer in a folk style with a long and very distinguished career. Confession, I like her music. One of her best-known pieces was written in 1982, called Tom's Diner, and it was resurrected by UK producers DNA, becoming a worldwide dance remix hit back in 1990. In fact, it's the kind of song that keeps getting rediscovered and successfully adapted, most recently by Britney Spears and Giorgio Moroder. So, as you can imagine, it's sold a lot. It's got another claim to fame, arguably of an even more long-lasting kind, one that would ensure it's got a place in every music lover's collection. But at least one person might have a good reason to dislike it. His name? Karl-Heinz Brandenburg. And his job involved him listening to that track over and over and over again. Try it. Pick your favourite piece of music and then play it repeatedly. Two, three, ten, fifty, one hundred, five hundred, a thousand times. Trust me, my bet is you're not going to be such a fan at the end of all of that. At least, you might need a little time before you decide you want to listen again. Well, the work that he was doing was research into audio compression. Essentially, how to make digital copies of music in files small enough to broadcast or to share. And Brandenburg needed a piece of music to test his latest algorithm. As he explained, I was ready to fine-tune my compression algorithm, and somewhere down the corridor a radio was playing Tom's Diner. I was electrified. I knew it would be nearly impossible to compress this warm a cappella voice. Which is how it comes about that Suzanne might have a good claim to being a mother of invention. And the invention in question here was the MP3. What's an MP3? Well, without getting too technical, it's what enables the music and other sound files to fit on your phone, your tablet, your computer or any other device. Now, we've had the idea of sound reproduction for nearly 200 years. Uh, although Edward Leon Scott, who was the inventor in 1857 of the phonograph, didn't think we'd actually want to listen. Uh, we'd be instead content to look at traces scrawled on paper emerging from his machine as it captured the incoming sound. So while he invented recording, it wasn't until Thomas Edison, 20 years later, that the possibility of playback came into view. And with that, things began to happen. But of course, that history had its own innovation challenges, a series essentially improving on the basics, not least how we store and manipulate the recordings we make. Wax cylinders gave way to shellac discs, which improved in capacity and reliability as newer materials became available. Other options emerged, magnetic oxide coated on tapes, optically readable compact discs using lasers, and eventually digital media. The trouble is that fidelity, which in Edison's day was pretty low, can only get higher at the expense of having big files carrying the recorded information. To put it in perspective, by the 1980s, when Karl-Heinz Brandenburg was working, 
It took 10 hours for a mainframe computer to decode one minute of digitized music. Now that's a big barrier. Many people could see the possibilities in digital media, in fields like music and films, but that wasn't going to happen if the storage problem couldn't be solved. Now, it's in situations like this that standards become important, not as regulations which constrain innovation, but rather as offering a framework within which conversations, research, other stuff can happen which shapes the future development of an innovation trajectory. In this case, the International Standards Organization, the ISO, played a very important role because it hosted a community of practice which became known as the Motion Pictures Expert Group, MPEG. Uh, it was particularly the brainchild of Leonardo Chiaraglione and it drew in big companies like Philips and AT&T as well as institutes like the one in which Karl-Heinz Brandenburg was working. And the initial focus of this expert group was to try and enable the technologies around CD-ROMs. But the group could already see many other applications if digital files for audio and video could be compressed. So as their discussions progressed, so a series of subgroups emerged around different layers of the emerging standard model particularly the one concerned with audio. And they became known as MPEG Layer 1, Layer 2, and Layer 3. Now, one of the success stories in the German innovation system is the way in which university research finds its way into practice so effectively. And one of the key channels is the network of Fraunhofer Institutes. These are set up close to major universities with public funding, but they have a specific targeted mission area. They're staffed by a mixture of industry and university researchers, and many professors hold dual roles. So it wasn't a surprise that Dieter Seitzer was both a professor at the respected Friedrich Alexander Universität, the university in Erlangen close to Nuremberg, and he was also the director of the nearby Fraunhofer Institute for Integrated Circuits. And it also wasn't a surprise that in 1987, he had Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, one of his researchers, working in his team on an EU program, a European Union program called Eureka, which was one that designed to bring industry and university researchers together. Project 147 was focused on digital audio broadcasting. DAP, and particularly on the audio compression problem. So, Karl Heinz was working on a novel approach based on psychoacoustics, basically a field that looks at how humans hear or sometimes don't hear things. And particularly, he realized that filtering out many of the sounds or masking them that people wouldn't really recognize wouldn't affect the remaining quality of the audio. So he could, in fact, reduce the size of files quite dramatically if he could work out precisely which sounds to leave out or mask and encode the audio. Which is why he needed Tom's Diner and specifically Suzanne Vega's beautiful voice. Well, by 1989, Karl had his PhD and a German patent on his approach. And by 1993, he'd moved across to work full time at the Fraunhofer Institute, where an enlarged team under the leadership of Heinz Gerhäuser was working to try and improve both the technology 
and its application. Now, in terms of christening cards, it wasn't much. Just a short email informing the team about how to refer to their work in future correspondence. But on July the 14th, 1995, the MP3 was born. The email basically has as its subject, file extension for layer 3 MP3. And it basically said, in the light of overwhelming consensus of a survey, the file extension for ISO MPEG audio layer 3 is now .mp3. The email concluded with a cryptic comment, there's a good reason, believe me. There certainly was. Fraunhofer should have been in a strong position. In 1996, they were granted US patent number 5,579,430 for a digital encoding process. They'd already built a working encoder, i3-ENC, and launched that in 1994. But once they could see significant potential, they couldn't persuade others that their approach was worthwhile. Big companies like Philips were pursuing their own approaches and potential users weren't knocked out by the technology. Despite their best marketing efforts, they'd only managed to scratch the surface with a licensing deal with the firm responsible for broadcasting the National Hockey League in the United States. Not quite world domination, but at least they had the name MP3. So they decided to try another avenue exploit the growing interest in internet marketing and offer licenses through that channel. WinPlay 3, their player, was launched in September of that year with a modest price of around $50, targeted, as the name suggests, at personal computer users running Windows. It wasn't a runaway success. In fact, general reception was lukewarm, not least because it lacked an exciting user interface. But releasing software across the internet carried risks even then, especially in an environment where the wares, that's to say the group, the community interested in often illegal sharing of files, were experimenting with sharing music, albeit mostly in uncompressed formats, which didn't lend themselves to widespread activity. An Australian hacker with the pseudonym Solo H bought a copy of Fraunhofer's WinPlay 3, using a stolen credit card, and then worked his way back, rummaged around files at the university, found the original source code, tweaked it a little, and released a freeware version. At least he showed a little remorse, because he did name the distro, the file that he shared, Thank you, Fraunhofer. From a business point of view, this was bad news. The Fraunhofer team eventually retreated to a position where they continued to license the encoder, but accepted that the player element of their software was now well and truly out there. From a diffusion angle, this was the turning point. The software spread quickly and was hacked further. In particular, Thomas Uzalaks, a Croatian programmer, came up with his AMP MP3 player in 1997. He released that initially as freeware, but later tried to set up a company to commercialize it. Unfortunately for him, the cat, or rather the software, was well and truly out of the bag and had already taken up residence with, amongst others, a US entrepreneur, Justin Frankel, who licensed the AMP engine in June 1997. 
A year later, he'd set up his company Nullsoft and created Winamp, another freeware player for MP3. He and his colleague Dmitry Boldriev quickly learned with the market and adapted their product. They added skins, playlists, other features, so it quickly became a runaway success, despite their charging by then a $10 shareware fee. Winamp 1, the first version, sold over 3 million copies. Winamp 2, launched a year later, was one of the most popular Windows applications for its time. Nullsoft was eventually sold in 1999 to AOL for $80 million, and by 2000 it had 25 million users, a year later 60 million. Very widespread diffusion. But something else was happening across this emerging platform which would shake the foundations of the music industry altogether. The big difference between digital music and physical versions is that when you lend your album to someone else, there's really still only one copy. But if you share the file, there are two copies. And if your friend shares with a couple of others, there are four, 16, and very quickly, it's grown out of all proportion. Now, these fluid conditions opened up the possibility for further innovation, enabling sharing in more systematic and widespread fashion. Enter Sean Parker and Sean Fanning, who in 1999 launched a site called Napster, named after Fanning's university nickname. And this pioneered the idea of peer-to-peer, P2P networking, and opened up the possibilities of widespread file sharing. Within a year of its launch, there were close to 30 million users, and some network providers to US colleges calculated that perhaps two-thirds of their bandwidth was being used by students swapping files. It's perhaps not entirely fanciful to think that one of those music files might have been Tom's Diner. At this scale, it was inevitable that the music industry would begin to fight back. When Metallica found that their song, I Disappear, had been played in illegal MP3 format on radio stations weeks before its official release, it triggered the response. On December the 6th, 1999, the Recording Industry Association of America filed a lawsuit against Napster, the first of many. They won. But that didn't stop the problem, even though it eventually resulted in Napster's bankruptcy. By 2001, digital music using MP3 as the core format was everywhere. Microsoft had bundled the capability into its Windows Media Player, available on millions of PCs. The Fraunhofer team had a happy ending. They finally began to receive a small royalty from anyone using the format based on their patent. And they were able to use this money, which ran into several billion dollars in the end, to fund further R&D. But the big changes in terms of reshaping the music industry weren't actually going to come from the controlled environment of a research lab. More of that later, but for now, perhaps we should end by wishing once again, 25 years later, a happy birthday to the MP3. Mm -hmm.